Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Tower clear. Greetings. Co-hosts Tom Hill and Eleanor Rangers continue their interview with physicist and space radiation expert Jeff Chancellor in this podcast episode. Jeff is an assistant professor of physics at Louisiana State University with research interests in applications of how heavy ion radiation interacts with soft and condensed matter for ground-based analogs, manned spaceflight vehicle structure, shielding, and clinical health care. During part two of our interview, we'll discuss the specific risks posed by space radiation to space explorers, starting with defining the types of radiation that concern us in space exploration. We'll delve into the particulars of risks specific to the lunar and Martian surface and conclude with beginning to explore issues pertaining to radiation shielding, which can be summed up simply as this, easier said than done. So while we're grounding ourselves, could you describe to the audience like the main concerns with space radiation are? Short-term, long-term, mid-term, that sort of thing. All of those. Um, so short-term would be like a solar particle event like they had in that movie itself. And that's a realistic scenario. Um, we have no real capability of predicting them or even characterizing the intensity of that event itself. Um, so having the capability to shield effectively for those is still a problem because it would take, you know, a good bit of mass to attenuate it more than we've ever launched in a vehicle or humans outside of low Earth orbit. And so in the case of that, uh, that event that happened on the TV show, that it was very feasible for that to be a, a life-threatening, if not fatal, event if an astronaut was exposed to that event without sufficient shielding itself. That continues to be a problem because it requires enough shielding that we don't yet have the lift capacity to put a vehicle with humans and all the other supplies and support hardware nutrition in outside of the orbit yet. But hopefully we will shortly. And there's been a lot of advances recently, especially with the work that SpaceX is doing. The other side would be like the chronic low dose exposure and that's the galactic cosmic ray exposure. And those are like uh, ions, fully ionized ions of almost every species in the periodic table, mostly up to like nickel or ion that are moving at energies high enough where spacecraft shielding actually doesn't provide a sufficient amount of, of shielding. And actually, if you were to increase the shielding because the nature of those heavy charged particles, you could actually increase the dose and make it much more dangerous. So it's one of those things where we kind of try to monitor the the how much they've, an astronaut has been exposed over the lifetime of their uh, spaceflight career. So yeah, that you're talking secondary particle events, right? If you get if your shielding gets too thick, right? Because if you think because because most of the most of that of the GCR spectrum, galactic cosmic ray spectrum, is protons or fully ionized hydrogen or alphas or fully ionized 
helium, but a good bit of them, especially their contribute contribution to the dose are heavier charged particles with multiple nucleons, neutrons or protons in their nucleus. And so if you remember in physics, the conservation of energy, if you have that energy, like for a, you know, iron ion with at one mega electron volt, if you break it apart, it still has that one MeV energy, but now it's just distributed amongst the various um, progeny fragments from that um, breakup. And so in, instead of possibly going straight through the vehicle and causing minimum damage to the hardware or to the humans inside the vehicle, now you have particles that have energies that are lower and could possibly range out inside of the humans uh, because the difference between how heavy charged particles interact with material versus how like x-rays or gamma are distinctly different. They lose most of their energy at the very end of their path in a material. And that's what makes them very effective for proton and carbon and heavy ion radiotherapy. But it also makes it very difficult for shielding and protecting humans in space. Wow. Now that actually brings up another point, um, you know, kind of back to the TV show when we saw the that effect on the on the lunar surface. Is it true that in some respects you could say that the lunar or Martian environment is more dangerous than being in interstellar space because you can get these secondary uh, spray of particles coming from the regolith or the Martian soil. I, so I don't know if we've if we've been able to fully characterize whether it's more dangerous or not in interplanetary space. Um, but when when the cosmic rays hit the lunar regolith or proton events, they do cause nuclear reactions. And the big concern is neutrons generated in those reactions bouncing back up um, from the surface. And neutrons are biologically um, devastating in comparison to like the heavy charged particles in GCR or even these energetic protons and solar particle events. So we're still completely, we're not completely sure the level of um, risk it will be to human health because of that. We hope to um, be able to characterize it. it. Believe it or not, there's never been a particle detector on the surface of the moon that measured the radiation spectrum and species um, spectrum itself in the history of spaceflight. Don't wow. ask a question you don't want an answer to. <laughs> well, yeah, it's actually a question we do want an answer to, but right, it, it, it's something in a way you don't want the answer to. The Chinese were able to land a, a, a vehicle, uh, I think it was recently as last year, and they were able to measure the energy spectrum but we have yet to see what the particle spectrum is like for the neutral albedo neutrons bouncing back up from the, um, the regolith itself. Um, we're hoping to do that, um, by the end of this year, but we'll see if that goes through or not. Wow. But yeah, but, what about, what about Mars with any of the rovers? I, I, I mean, that hasn't been the prime, I don't think that's been the primary mission for those rovers, but has there been any work done with that? And is there any difference between, I know, I mean, I know there's a thin atmosphere on Mars, but, is is it a more hostile environment on the moon, I guess, because of lack of atmosphere than it would be on Mars? Um, so, yeah, Mars has a little bit of atmosphere. It's about the equivalent of like the space shuttle in terms of shielding the entire atmosphere. Um, there's actually been two radiation detectors on the surface of Mars that I know of. The Marie detector um, that landed there in 2005. And it was actually it was actually destroyed by a solar particle event in October, 2005. 
Um, and, and then the Curiosity rover that launched in 2013, 14, had a detector on it that, that took measurements during the entire traversal to Mars. And, and I think it's still active taking radiation particle and spectrum measurements on the surface of Mars right now. There's, there's multiple publications on that. Um, but I would, I would guess that the moon um, could possibly be much, you know, back of the envelope calculation, you know, much more dangerous because first of all, you're closer to the sun. So if you do have a anomalous event, you're more likely to be hit with a denser field of radiation because it spreads out as it moves along the the um, interplanetary magnetic field, but you also do have no shielding. So you probably have a higher intensity of galactic cosmic rays in this, a larger affluence of albedo neutrons. So um, without proving it, I would say it is probably a little bit dangerous, more dangerous. Okay. I want to ask a little bit about shielding. And then another kind of really wild question that I was thinking about this afternoon about shielding. First, before we get into sort of the practical realities of what's been looked at or considered. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the the Earth is basically the atmosphere of course shields a lot of the exposure to radiation, but also it's it's the magnetosphere that does a fair amount of that shielding. Is that correct? Correct. So that being said, has there been any consideration to could you produce local magnetic fields that you know, maybe around an astronaut that could serve as a some type of protection. And I don't know what the negative effects of that exposure would be. Um, I guess I'm almost thinking, like, could you literally create like almost like an MRI field, I guess, in a way to uh, help protect an astronaut? So uh, theoretically, you could, but practically, I would say no. Um, because if you look, I've, I've seen some of the predictions and studies. If, if you think about the, the the intensity of a field that you would need to take a relativistic heavy charge particle and turn it more than 90 degrees, because conceptually you would have to turn it more than 90 degrees, because otherwise, if it's an isotropic field, you're just taking everything and rotating it a certain amount. Mm. So you, you would need to be able to deflect it in a very short path. Uh, I'm not sure how wide the this intense magnetic field could be uh, practically but it would have to be with i would think in a few meters or less and if you think about the earth's magnetic field that extends beyond the moon you know it has a pretty good chance of deflecting particles because they get a running start way out there thousands of miles away yeah and from that um, yeah from that distance you don't have to deflect it as much right just a, just a little bit and plus we have the atmosphere that helps too but also, I mean, everything I've seen so far published, it would take 15 to 20 tons of additional oh, infrastructure, infrastructure. Um, which is ridiculous. If you think of a spaceflight mission where they're like for the uh, Mars mission where they're talking about launching, it's a six to eight month traverse to Mars and they're spending a couple months on the surface and then coming back another six to eight months. Um, and they're arguing over how much food they're going to take or how many pairs of underwear or how many vitamins they're going to take. The last chance you're going to get is 20 tons of infrastructure to support a superconducting magnetic field. But, and that doesn't even take into account, you know, everything in space breaks. So you have to have redundancy and, and tools to repair it. Um, and then you're also risk an anomaly where if you did all the energy it took to power that field, if there was a loss of power, where does that power go? Well, most likely, if there's a short and a loss of power, it's going to go into the avionics or the life support system and fry it. 
you put a magnetic field outside the vehicle. Not only do you have another 20 to 25 tons of infrastructure you have to count for, which we can barely launch, you know, enough mass to take enough underwear for the astronauts. But now you have to account for that plus additional fuel because you'll have drag plasma charging on the surface, um, all kinds of things. So ideally it's the cool sci-fi Star Trek concept, you know, shields up and you're protected, but practically I just don't see it happening right now, but it could, I, I don't want to rule it out because in the future with, advances in that kind of engineer or technology, it could be the solution. Right now, the best thing to do would be go faster or um, prove it is or is not a risk. So two two main groups that we're looking at as far as problems. You've got the solar-produced radiation and particles, and then you've got the galactic cosmic rays that come from every direction. One of the answers I'd always heard of to at least combat the solar problem was to have a shelter set up with like your water supply as part of your shielding that would face the sun in that direction. Is that a valid approach? Correct. Um, Because those are mostly protons. I think 95% of that field is protons and you can attenuate that with something that has a high hydrogen um, concentration, charged particles, shielding, the lower the, the, the Z, of the material, the more effective it is at shielding. So for protons, that is a reasonable solution. It wouldn't necessarily need to be in one direction if it's a large field, because it is moving along the interplanetary magnetic fields and a charged particle does rotate around it, oscillatory. So a large event, we always assume it's gonna be isotropic. So you would want a shelter in place to protect them from all six sides of the vehicle. But I also always try to remind people that you know, imagine living in your closet with five of your friends that were forced on you for a space mission. You know, go in there for two weeks and minimal communication in that small space. And now imagine climbing into a box the size of like a washing machine and spending two days in there because some of these events can last one to two or three days. Um, and then tell me, what is your mental health when this is all over? Now imagine that for six to eight months. So it's it's a solution we have right now, but I don't see it being the most practical solution because I think that probably behavior and nutrition and having a crew that can learn to live in such a very small confined space for a long time is probably a bigger risk to the mission itself. Huh. Yeah, talking about another science fiction thing, there's a, a one of my favorite shows and books is The Expanse. And just as a sidebar story, one time a guy said that there was a radiation event and 36 of them were locked in a were locked in a room. And, you know, there were f- four marriages and the rest of them never spoke to each other again. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. It's a long time to be in a very, very small confined space. Yep. People don't realize this space station is like the equivalent of a six bedroom house in terms of square footage. So it's not a very, very small vehicle like the Dragon capsule with maybe a service module. It's a pretty sizable um, vehicle where from what I've been told you can get lost and not see anybody the entire day um, in some instances. So I, I, w- I would say the first thing we need to do is prove that it's actually a risk. So, so an acute exposure from solar part- protons or solar particle events is a viable risk that we know of. And we know that if you have that, that level of dose exposed and absorbed by a human body, it could lead to severe prodromal outcomes and even death if not treated or mitigated soon, 
but there's never been a human health outcome that is attributed to the kind of exposure you get from the galactic cosmic rays, that low dose, very low dose rate exposure. Um, so there's a, that, that's a lot of the reasons why recently NASA had that new, um, they had an event and they had the Academy of Science evaluate if they could take the career exposure limits and lower them for the crew because in 60 years now, we haven't seen any outcomes um, in humans that, that attribute cognitive deficits, cardiovascular disease, cancer, and all the other presumed drift of, of radiation occur in any of the astronaut population. Yeah, which is really quite interesting in and of itself. And <clears throat> I, I vaguely remember that there was a poster I saw at uh, asthma a couple of years ago that looked at that question. And if I recall, the only thing that maybe was a slight uptick was cataracts. And, right. uh, and that was it. Right. Even that's been kind of downplayed because I'm not sure if it's as big as resist. And they, they, that actually may have been my poster because I've been talking about this for a while now, um, especially at asthma, because I think that engaging the, the aerospace medicine community in this research is critical because they need to be the ones to interpret what the physicists and the biologists and the epidemiologists are coming with and how, how do you translate in, that into how it affects humans. So I've been I'm very focused on engaging that community and um, getting their input and feedback about some of these presumptions that myself and my collaborators in my lab are making about it. I can't say for 100% certainty that it's not a risk. Um, I feel like it probably isn't, but the, our goal is to prove it's not a risk or at least prove what is the level of the risk, uh, yeah. what is the threshold dose for instigating this. And, and then we would be able to look at mechanisms and pathways and finally look at some type of mitigation, whether it's pharmaceutical or nutritional or some other method. So that gets at another question. And I still want to talk about like shielding on, on a planetary surface. But, you know, I'm not really aware of there being very many pharmaceutical ways of mitigating uh, risk at this point. Um, the only one that immediately comes to mind is I always think of the thyroid issues that happened after Chernobyl and, you know, talking about giving thyroid uh, medication, I think to, uh, or iodine, I think it is to, to mitigate that. But I'm not aware of other pharmaceuticals at this point that really are being used to, pro as to protect individuals. Yeah, that's very specific for a type of, of radiation exposure being iodine, right? You're preventing the uptake of iodine by overloading your thyroid with, with decent iodine. Mm -hmm. Right. And that, that, that's, that countermeasure is specific to the type of, of radiation being emitted from that event itself, which is completely unique to that. And it has nothing to do with what they're exposed to in space radiation. Matter of fact, there's never been a pharmaceutical countermeasure implemented for operational space flight to mitigate the effects of space radiation. Cause we still don't even know, Honestly, what are the effects of space radiation? What's the risk? You can't, if you don't know what you're treating, why would you treat right. it? Exactly. I, I don't know all of the details, but I have one of my good friends and persons I work with is a, he has an MD and a PhD. He's a practicing radiation oncologist, specifically using proton radiotherapy, but he also does space radiation research as, as a researcher. And I know one of the common countermeasures for prodromal symptom, symptoms after treatment where they get nausea or emesis or various other acute effects is using Nupagen 
And I can't remember the exact explanation that he gave me, but in space, if you were to give an astronaut Nupagen um, to counter an acute exposure, like from a solar proton event, um, there's a good chance you'll kill them because of the way the microgravity environment interacts with their body and that um, pharmaceutical mechanism. So it's still well, quite the conundrum. Yeah. Nupagen, if I recall, is actually stimulating white blood cell production. So it's different yeah. than like giving erythropoietin, which stimulates red cell production. But um, there can be some associated risk with that. And I want to say some of it's cardiovascular, just acutely increasing the release of those white cells. I don't know if that if it can actually affect um, blood viscosity. And could you put someone at risk for thrombosis? And we know that we've seen thrombosis um, now, you know, at least carotid thrombosis in space. So, so yeah, it's a big unknown. I can't see justifying prophylactic treatment or anything at this point because we don't know what we don't know what the risk is, and then. You had you to tailor what the secondary effects are. Yeah, no, it's it's a huge problem. Yeah, I think and that, and that sounds familiar. I think he mentioned something. It's been a couple of years since he mentioned it. Again, I'm not a biologist or a physician, recreationally only. But I think he mentioned something about depleting the hemopoietic uh, stem cells in the bone marrow compartment. Um, and that sounds that, bad. Yeah, how it yeah, interacted that, with like good. the dermal systems and, and other responses. I'd have to ask him again, to be honest with you. But so um, for a long time, that was considered to be a feasible option. But I guess it's been proven wrong. So to put this in a historical context, as far as like the actual impacts of space radiation in a historical context, are we at the point now where we think there might be scurvy, but we're not sure? You mean in perspective? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it, it sounds like yeah. you know we're sending we're sending people on ships and they're coming back and we think we can send them further, but we're not sure. But there's this thing that you know might be a problem. <laughs> yeah, it literally is this the, an exact comparison. And ironically, of all of the risks that an astronaut signs off on, you know, informed consent, and I acknowledge the fact that you're going to put me on several tons of explosive. <laughs> uh, fuel and and literally explode me into space. I, I know I'm going to be in space in a pressurized vehicle. So if there's a leak and it's a rapid leak, I could die. All these other risks that they're allowed to acknowledge and say they're willing to accept. Um, but space radiation is not one of those. It's the only risk to their health that they there is no informed consent where they can say, I am willing to accept the risk of a 3% increase in cancer based on this exposure over the course of my 20 year career. But yeah, it's kind of crazy. That's fascinating. I, and in fact, I never even realized that they do have some sort of informed consent that they're signing off on um, with all the other known risks. But it's, I'm surprised that they don't even have some general disclaimer or something like there are other risks that are currently not fully characterized or unknown risks that we can't control right now, but are you willing to accept that that's a possibility that could affect your long-term lifespan or something? Right. Yeah. And I, I would imagine that a lot of that is feeding in from, you know, NASA. People think NASA is a science agency or a science institute. They're not. They're an engineering mission-oriented yeah. agency. And if you think about it, I remember early in the space shuttle program as a little kid reading that they had predicting, they had predicted a approximately 2% catastrophic failure rate. 
Um, and if you look at 135 missions and there was two catastrophic failures, they got yep. really close. So I think they, since they were able to characterize that in relation to all the other risks, they felt comfortable moving forward and having the astronauts sign off of that. But there was so much uncertainty with space radiation um, that they never got to the point where we could say it's only a 5% risk or a 10% risk or a 20% risk. But it, but that's becoming bigger and bigger of a, of a limitation. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of the, it's the elephant, in the, it's the, invi- literally the invisible elephant in the room. I'm sure right. people talk about it or it's sort of, you know, I can't imagine that that wouldn't come up in conversation at some points in, in mission preparation, but yeah, that's, that's interesting. Never, never right. realized that. Right. And there's, and there's one I can talk about if, cause she was very vocal about it. It's in the press USA today and time, but when they were doing the evaluation for who would be the crew member selected for the one-year mission. There were certain metrics that the, the the astronauts had to meet, and one had to be prior long-duration flight, and then prior command in a long-duration flight, meaning they had at least two ISS missions, because typically they don't sign up command on the first one. And one of them was you would have to land after this one-year mission with your career dose below that threshold that is assigned to NASA based on age and gender. Um, and Peggy Whitson and all the other females were limited. And I can mention her by name because she actually talked about this in public, that there was no females considered for that mission because of that one limitation, the, the radiation exposure and their limitation based on the how much they could be, uh, be exposed to during spaceflight operations. And the, and the levels are different for women versus men. Right. And, and yeah, so I, I didn't like the fact that she called that sexism or discrimination because those were, you know, the science may not be the best, I guess. But it was but done it with is, the best science we have. Yeah, it's done with the best understanding of the science we have. Exactly. It wasn't done to discriminate based on gender. It was done because this is what the science that we knew was telling us. You could also argue that it was a age discriminator because as you get older you can actually be exposed to more so it's discriminating against younger astronauts too because the limitation was that if you had this dose at 25 or 30 you were likely to live long enough to get cancer whereas at 40 or 50 chances are you're going to be dead before the cancer develops anyway so we don't care yeah it's a lot of irony there yeah and that's been one of the arguments i mean there have been proposals of sending older astronauts you know to mars for that very reason Right. Yeah. When the Inspiration Mars was talking about doing that mission with somebody, I think they were going to use the old Soyuz capsules. It was going to be an older 50 to 60 year old married couple. And I'm laughing because I just remember that conversation you had about the, the TV show about the sending the married couples to the small room. Um, yeah, it probably wouldn't have worked out very well. We hope you enjoyed part two of our interview with physicist and space radiation expert, Dr. Jeff Chancellor. Join us for the conclusion of our discussion in our next podcast. For co-hosts Tom Hill and Emily Carney, this is Eleanor Rangers for Space 3D.